1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: If the planners of Social Security thought they were just ensuring a few elderly people would leave their jobs and get a pension for the last decade or so of their lives, it took only the first true recipient of Social Security to illustrate that something very different happened. Ida Mae Fuller, born on a Vermont farm, a legal secretary in Ludlow, Vermont. In 1939, at age 65, she retired. And on January 31, 1940, she collected a check for $22.54. She would collect checks for 35 more years. By 1975, the time of her death at age 100, Fuller had collected over twenty-two thousand eight hundred and eighty-eight thousand dollars whereas she had contributed $24.75 from a 2% payroll tax that she paid for two years of working. She had outlived the president who had signed the law, the senators that had pushed hardest for it, the congressmen that Likely named the law, the private citizen who had campaigned for it in the abstract, the labor secretary and first woman member of the cabinet who had pushed for the system, several administrators of the social security system, and she had outlived many people who had paid into the system and received benefits. We shouldn't be hard on Ida. She's not a person who made out like a bandit. She was a good citizen, and her retirement opened up a job. For someone else. Something that in 1939 was nothing to sneeze at. Maybe she contributed in other ways to her community. Social Security is a social insurance program. One of the reasons that uh, President Roosevelt's original name of economic security was changed. We don't know exactly who changed it. One of the contenders is a California congressman, Frank Buck. But the resulting social insurance program reduced nearly eliminated elder poverty. The most remembered part of the New Deal was actually a moderate compromise developed in 1935. The political impetus was twofold. FDR was flush with New Deal momentum after receiving a second mandate in the 1934 midterms. And there was pressure from The Townsend Clubs, all over the country, friends at Townsend, a Long Beach, California physician, was convincing older people that they could get a $200 pension per month. Huey Long, Senator from Louisiana, was going to give everyone $2,000 a year and buy them a home. By contrast, Social Security was meager, a fraction of what left-wing groups wanted. Some people are proposing programs that would take up 41% of the federal budget, Edwin White, who was FDR's chief architect for the Economic Security Commission, said in his report. By contrast, the Social Security program was moderate and responsible. Sometimes when you read law emanating originally from kings and now the result of democratic majorities, it sounds a little magical. It sounds like we're casting a spell and Section 201 of the Social Security Bill of 1935, a bill that also contained, and sometimes we forget this, the original federal unemployment compensation program and aid to dependent children in addition to the old age program. There will hereby be created an account in the Treasury of the United States to be known as the old age reserve account. Thus began Social Security. Section 210 of the bill defined who qualified. Not everybody individuals who made more than 2000 per year paid by an employer not farmers not domestics not sailors not contractors businessmen not state workers and not religious workers and you had to be 65 to receive benefits we see social security as an original idea of the new deal but in actuality it was not novel it was loosely based on the new york program that governor roosevelt had. Income taxes would pay for a $22 average monthly pension. The New York bill was enacted in 1930, prime time of the Depression, at a cost of $13 million to the state of New York. Unlike Social Security, you had to be 70 to receive a pension, and you had to apply for it, something Eleanor Roosevelt called a shame. Applicants had to show, as in many states, that they had no children to care for them. Between that restriction and the general idea of not wanting to apply for assistance, a general kind of pride, only 13% of those eligible applied for New York state pensions. In that respect, though, New Yorkers fared better than those in other states. 28 states had old age pension systems prior to the enactment of Social Security. Only Arizona and Colorado had a higher enrolled rate than New York for their much smaller populations. Arizona did not require the recipients to show they had children to support them. West Virginia, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, and Nebraska, also Kentucky and Maine, were among the states that provided pensions in law but didn't get around to funding them either because of budget problems or because their state court ruled uh, pensions unconstitutional. Iowa, Michigan, and Minnesota were among the states that had such restrictions and delays that only 2% of those enrolled on average would get pensions. In Maryland, only about 150 persons of 92,000 eligible got pensions. Still, there were state programs before Social Security was created at the federal level, and it wasn't the only precedent in American history. There was no Social Security when a different Democrat, Grover Cleveland, was president. Yet that didn't stop him from being engaged in politics over pensions. In the aftermath of the Civil War, one of the largest functions of the U.S. federal government, in evidence today by the size of the pension building in Washington, D.C., believe it's near New Jersey Avenue, I saw it once, Uh, looking for a Starbucks. It's an enormous building. It's still there, used now for parties and functions. The most intense function of the federal government was pensions. In 1866, $15 was spent on pensions. By 1870, the number had doubled. Most were for soldiers with direct battlefield wounds, bullets, lost limbs, blindness, deafness. However, these Civil War pensions were not distributed to everyone and may not have been fair. They went only to Union soldiers, not Confederate. They became more generous because of the actions of the Grand Army of the Republic, the G.A.R., a soldiers organization that lives on today in Grand Army Plaza in the nation's capital. They pressured politicians to vote for pensions benefits when President Cleveland refused to enlarge the existing pension program, saying it would put a premium on mendacity, and open up cases that couldn't be resolved except by the knowledge of the claimant alone. The GAR backed Harrison and the Republicans, and in a tight presidential election, they changed the owners of the White House. The expansion of pensions began in 1879 with the Arrears Act. This allowed veterans to collect not only the pension, but also back money that went back to the time of the original injury. This could be thousands of dollars in 19th century dollars. As the New York Times said, the door was open to fraud. The Service-Based Pension Act was signed by Benjamin Harrison, who defeated Cleveland in the election. Kind of as a reward to the GAR constituency, it greatly expanded the number of beneficiaries. From 300,000 pensions in 1885, there were 1 million in 1893. The Civil War pension system of the 1890s was, as one social welfare historian said, an unabashed system of public care. That might be a little too strong. It wasn't as vast as Social Security, and you didn't just get it for being an American citizen, you had to have been in the army, but it had been expanded to widows and survivors, opening up, as Cleveland predicted, a wide possibility of fraud. We appeal to the honest soldiers of the Republic not to abuse the pension system, wrote the Philadelphia Times. Perhaps one person didn't get the message. In 1862, William Newby of White County, Illinois, was killed in the Battle of Shiloh. Or was he? Officially, he was, as many were, buried on the battlefield by his fellow soldiers. His widow moved from Illinois to Texas and collected the small widow's pension. She was due. Years and years later, a stranger appeared in town and started talking up locals, asking about Mrs. Newby. I am William Newby, he said. And soon, his wife was found and with 15000 in arrear payments at stake. She agreed that this was indeed her husband, who, due to the cannon fire and the disruption of battle, wandered off and forgot where he was. The pension board wasn't so sure about this whole story, and after a trial that included 140 witnesses on both sides, split the newbie's daughter and the newbie's son, split members of his regiment. The pension board determined that this William Newby was indeed a drifter named Rickety Dan Benton, who was from Newby's hometown. Grover Cleveland cited some other fantastic cases in his veto on pension expansion. One man, he said, rode out intending to join the Army, and when he fell off his horse, he argued he should get a cripple's pension now. A widow whose husband fell off a ladder traced the fall to a flesh wound in his calf he got 25 years before during the war. Another family of a Pennsylvanian claimed for a soldier that deserted and then on his way from deserting his unit drowned in a river. Now, John Logan, Illinois, represented the typical political response to the president's statement when he said, All soldiers left the war weaker than when they entered it. In a rare partisan moment for a relatively unpartisan president, Rutherford B. Hayes called the Cleveland policy penny-pinching. Republicans defended old age and disability pensions then. But actually, some Democrats also defended them. In fact, it was said in the political battle was who could outdo who in giving pensions to former Union soldiers. But the gold bug, bourbon, hard-money conservative Democrats like Cleveland opposed these expansion of these pensions. Of course, it wasn't technically an insurance system, so it's not a matter of things have changed now and Republicans then defended a Social Security program where Democrats mostly uh, defended now. This wasn't an insurance program. It was a military pension. On the other hand, a good chunk of the entire, at least the north of the country, qualified for that military service. And the Civil War, of course, was a very different type of war than the foreign wars that we experience today. And we probably don't have a mechanism to understand what it would be like if almost every male citizen fought in the war. And then what would we think their entitlement would be at that point, as opposed to a small percentage of heroes serving in a foreign war. So some interesting politics at that time, and certainly uh, Cleveland caught a lot of flack for it. Veterans groups didn't like it. The Grand Army of the Republic, of course, was already against Cleveland, but started to reduce his moderate reputation. He had a lot of supporters among Republicans, uh, mugwumps in New York, which helped him uh, to get elected grand army of the republic came out in full force in his reelection campaign of 1888 to defeat him one veterans group visiting washington and then visiting the southern states refused to see the president and told a newspaper we can see enough rebels heading south
1: america we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights life liberty and the pursuit of happiness At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you.
0: Cleveland argued, I am not insensible to the suggestions which should influence any to exhibit a just appreciation of services rendered. Public money expended is the soldier's fund, and this leads to the bestowal of pensions a kind of sacredness, ensuring the adoption of policies that will ensure a liberal and generous application of worthy beneficiaries. A little bit of the Buffalo trial lawyer there, and President Cleveland didn't exactly speak in sound bites, but essentially the argument is, I like the soldiers so much, I wouldn't dirty their pension fund by giving it to people who don't deserve it. And Cleveland was on some good political ground here, especially with mugwumps and reformers of his time. The potential gain of the so-called bogus claims was chatted about by reformers and newspaper editors all over the country and by the more fiscal politicians. But the pension system that resulted is evidence of majority support for pensions by the voters and the federal government and the size of the program. In the 1890s, pensions were 42% of federal income. By the way, that's the same as the horrible statistic that Edwin White's... uh, Gave in his nightmare scenario in his document originally supporting Social Security. It's evidence of how much the federal government was investing in this program. Although no pension for Confederate soldiers was ever granted, the argument was attempted that after a few decades, their taxes were now supporting Union pensions. That never flew. But Southern states began to institute pensions of their own. Of course, they were placing a greater tax burden on their very impoverished post-Civil War state citizens, and the pensions were much lower. Georgia, with uh, one of the more generous systems in the South, paid 130 uh, annually for the highest disability, a loss of sight, where the federal pension was $1,200. 18% of U.S. residents, 65 or over, or 8% of all women over 65, were on Civil War pensions by the turn of the century. In 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt, continuing a tradition of Republican support of pensions, issued an executive order stating that age itself was now a disability and that anyone who served in the Civil War and was still living could now apply. As a result, between 1870 and 1910, the number of veterans on pension. Went from 5% of veterans to 93%. Now, there's still 7%. And it does go to show you this was still a system you had to apply for. And there's still a group, albeit a small group, that uh, would not choose to apply. Some perspective here. With a few years of difference, these dates get cloudy. We can't really put in perspective Civil War veterans and what it means in the 20th century, how they might enter the 20th century, though, uh, of course, a good number of them did. Uh, We think of the Civil War in terms of that excellent Ken Burns documentary or many of the the books that we've read or what we learned in history class or or some old movie. We we sort of see it in still black and white uh, photographs. So uh, we've got to use something to be able to think about the Civil War veterans that lived uh, beyond the war. Uh, With a few years difference, if we think about Vietnam War veterans today who served anywhere from 66 to 73, it may be able to help us understand Civil War veterans only in terms of time reference. I mean, the two wars, of course, were very different. So now we're in 2011, and while they're older, there are still plenty of Vietnam vets around, of course, and now they dominate the Veterans Organizations of America. Thus it was with Civil War vets in 1911. Of course, the life expectancy is greater now than it was then at the turn of the century, but individuals have always uh, gone beyond those averages. In 1915, there were still 424,000 Union Civil War vets alive, and almost all, 396,000 of them were on pensions. Although, again, you see there's a small group that did not choose to take it. Just as Abraham Lincoln was still paying some Revolutionary War soldiers pensions, Theodore Roosevelt was paying pensions for Civil War soldiers. It's one of the long-term costs of war that leaders should always think about uh, before getting involved. Since the Civil War was fought in the United States and involved millions of male soldiers before its end, you can argue that, in the reality, the Civil War Pension program was an old-age program. By 1939, with the first social Security check being collected, hundreds of Civil War veterans, Confederate and Union, went to the Gettysburg Battlefield, lived briefly in a tent city that was established for them, and met with their respective enemies at the time, and now friends, and listened to a speech. Of unity by Franklin Roosevelt, the president. The 1930s, by the time when there was an end to some of the Civil War pensions, there was a push for another type of old age security program. Back to the vets to understand more about that. So Vietnam vets in 2030, during the war, they're 18, 19, 20 years of age. So they were in their 30s and the 80s. They were in their 50s, in 2000 and uh they will be in their late 80s and 90s in 2034 let's say around the time that uh, you're 100 years from uh, social security being considered now life expectancy currently is 77 but it's only 74 for males in the US it may improve so we can imagine that the vet population uh you know of course will be reduced because of the age but still bless our individuals who live a healthy life outside of health statistics. The last Civil War soldier died in the 1950s. So I think uh, we can expect our Vietnam vets, a few of them at least, to live past 2060. God bless them. Why am I talking about this? It's only for a time perspective, so you can think about the presence of these Civil War soldiers in terms of something you understand. So from a public policy perspective, the Civil War veterans were, were dying in the 1930s, and now there was uh, no provision for the new elderly. Certainly, if Civil War pensions didn't encourage Social Security, as is my theory, it did set up the precedent of an infrastructure of such a system. No one could question that the federal government couldn't do a nationwide pension it already had. Like those pensions, the early Social Security system grew over time. In 1937, the Federal Insurance Contribution Act, we still see it on our paycheck, FICA, was passed. This was the engine that started Social Security, so you weren't just taking monies out of the budget. Now you were taking a 2% payroll tax. Then in 1939, Social Security was expanded to include survivors and dependents. In 1950... Coverage was expanded beyond the original industrial jobs that it was originally intended for. And in 1952, Social Security survived a change in administration, as the Republican President Eisenhower expressed his support for the program and no desire to dismantle it. In 1956, the program was indeed extended to include now disability insurance. Women were also allowed to retire at age 62, but not men. To compensate for those changes, the payroll tax was doubled. It's now 4%. 1962, men were now allowed to retire at that age, at age 62. Uh, 1972, automatic cost of living adjustments, the so-called COLAs, were added. These are expensive, and by the end of the decade, payroll taxes were 9%. COLAs were increased in 1986, and payroll taxes were then 11% program has grown extensively. By 1960, 14.8 million people received Social Security. Now, some almost uh, 60 million do, when you count uh, not only the 50 or so million old age, but also 7 or 8 million dependent survivors, uh, disabled, etc. The percentage of the population, then, that benefits from Social Security uh, went from 5.4% when the first checks went out, to getting close to 15, uh, close to 20% now. This has been an interesting discussion of Civil War pensions and Social Security and kind of the basics of that system. We've talked about it on the podcast before, but it's obviously one of the more important federal programs. And the reason that I'm bringing it up and the tie-in to the politics of today is twofold. One, I think it relates to President Obama's health care bill and what the future of that might be. And secondly, it relates to the deficit and the budget of today. Social Security is still with us and it's a larger program than ever. That has consequences and a slim minority of people, but some people are talking about Social Security and if we need it. So I'm going to discuss that. First of all, President Obama's health care plan. This has four components really. A mandate that every American buy health insurance, a ban on disqualifying an insuree because of a pre-existing condition, subsidies for those who can't afford the insurance they're mandated to buy, it's progressive subsidies based on your income. The less you make, the more subsidies you get. And to pay for all this, in addition to borrowing some, taxes on pharmaceutical companies, device companies, and others. Conservative listeners will maybe want to put on earmuffs for my next two points. You're not going to like it. This healthcare program, I must insist, is a program that received a mandate at least in one election in the 2008 election. Now, the one part of it that you can argue did not receive a mandate was the mandate, the individual mandate, the requirement that you buy health insurance just for being American. It's true that that wasn't necessarily spelled out during the election, but both Democratic candidates Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama battled each other over which health care plan would be more generous, and Americans overwhelmingly elected the Democratic candidate for president. The second point I make, which some might not like, is that of the effectual ways the government could go ahead and do universal health care, if that's your goal, that's where I might disagree a little, this program was the most free market of those ways. If you're going to do universal health care, this is the way to do it. You've got to mandate that everyone buy insurance from a private company. And the mandate pays for what the insurance companies don't like, which is that they're going to have to take these people with pre-existing conditions. That ban on disqualifying individuals for insurance because of a pre-existing condition is one of the most popular parts of the law. It's all the other things that generate controversy. Now, there might be a small percentage of people who don't like that either. The key plan, subsidies and exchanges, don't play, take place until 2014. Not unlike Social Security, the taxes, at least the tax on uh, medical device makers, will be in place beforehand in 2013. That is, if the program is not repealed. Social Security was bitterly opposed by conservatives. But repeal was never threatened. That makes it very different for President Obama's health care plan. It was more popular. Repeal was never threatened. And there was pressure on left from left-wing groups to do more. There's a little bit of that today, but not as intense. President Obama and the Democratic Congressional Health Care Plan, you really have to call it that, remember, even though Obama pushed for it, it's Congress's more moderate plan, has been opposed by a significant group from the get-go. It's not well explained, in my opinion. The, the sales job on this was terrible. It has an unpopular... Uh, component, this individual mandate. And it was etched in a time of already scary deficits and recession. There are two main obstacles to it that uh, Roosevelt didn't face, congressional and judicial. On the congressional side, repeal was attempted, but not successful. The votes are not there in the Senate, and the president will veto any repeal of his creation, his significant achievement. This means that it will be until 2013 before the program could be. The program thus hinges on the presidential election of 2012. What's going to happen with health care? What's going to happen with the election are one and the same. It's way too early for speculation on that. It really is. The only thing you can throw out there is that the Republican feels a little weak right now, but even that is, that's a bad prediction to make right now when we had, uh, we can go back to 1992 and President uh, Bill Clinton was not really a household name at that time, hadn't appeared on a Arsenio yet. So it's way too early to speculate on that. And since healthcare is tied to 2012, there's not much to say about its future in terms of will it be repealed. It at least looks on track until 2013. The second is the judicial challenge. The court, high court, is not weighed in. Except to say that they don't want to supersede the lower courts on this issue. If they really felt strongly about an issue, they'd stop it right now and pick it up from the lower courts. But that does not mean that the court finds this constitutional. You can't judge their opinion in the matter by their decision not to overrule the lower courts. They almost never do. Without a detailed examination, I think the preponderance, in my own view, is on the federal precedent for regulating an area it already regulates so much, and in an effort to reduce the cost that the federal government is paying for a lot of American citizens, children, disabled, elderly. So it's not like stay out of healthcare government. Uh, they're in it already. So I'm not sure how the court's going to rule otherwise. On the other hand, this is a muscular court. The lower courts have, some of them have paved the way by saying the law is an extreme use of federal power. I think you could get Scalia, Thomas, and Alito to flinch on the mandate idea. They might only rule the mandate unconstitutional. It would make the system unworkable, but leave certain things in place, and be interesting how the president responds to that. But since this is an action of a popularly elected legislature, I mean, they may not be so popular now for doing it, but they were elected at the time, you might see Scalia not want to touch this issue, and he might say, if you don't like it, vote for somebody else. So I think you have this health care reform up until you get a chance to see the subsidies and health care exchanges taking effect. And then if you do, here's where the history of Social Security, I believe, plays in that the program is likely to be expanded and amended over time. I mean years, I mean decades. That's one reason a deeper look at Social Security is interesting. A second reason is that as a contributor, along with debt payments, military, Medicare, to the real budget of the United States, eliminating Social Security would greatly assist in meeting our deficit, of course, uh, in in a rather painful way for millions of Americans. Yet, when you look at Civil War pensions, the inadequate state pensions that were attempted, life before the Depression, and after the industrialization of the country, when really a significant population couldn't work on the farm and be supported by the family farm anymore, there will be a need for programs, no matter how you slice it, that address dear old mom and dad. One of the lessons of the years before Social Security is that non-universal programs suffer From shaming those who apply for it. It There's often red tape, and usually programs are underfunded. When economic times are bad, a program you have to apply for, government has to make a special effort in order to fund, don't fare so well when all of a sudden the pool of applicants increase. Life before Social Security certainly wasn't fantastic. And we've seen an example, at least recently, of a catastrophic economic crash that the type of which in the 1930s, and it wasn't as severe as the Great Depression, but still the financial panic part was pretty severe. That crash of 2008, you still had tens of millions of people, scores of millions of people who were at least collecting some income that wasn't going to change because it was coming from the government. Not related to the stock market, although they had other problems related to dividend income and the like. If we eliminate Social Security, on one side, you would have some greater amount of your check to yourself. Not a lot, though, and certainly we'd have to work out a system where we pay back all the people who paid in, so it might take some time before you actually got any savings in the check. On the other hand, mom and dad, now they're knocking on your door. They no longer get Social Security, can't pay the rent, can't pay the property taxes. They're moving in. Build a room for them. Now, I know many listeners will say, wait, my mother and father already live with me and we do have a room for them. That's great. They're not going to be able to contribute as much to the household if they're doing it now, put as much money into the grandkids, etc. Secondly, did you just get a promotion at work? You may have still gotten it if there was no Social Security, but you may not have. See, that was the original reason for the Social Security program. There may be a lot more older workers in the workforce without it holding on to their jobs. And when they hold on to jobs, I mean, companies might eventually force them out. But that's a few more years that you have to wait to take jobs and get promoted, move up the ladder. And if you're participating in the real estate market, if you either own a house or you want to get involved in renting out property, you can only imagine the real estate market with no Social Security. Those are the bad points. I mean, there's no serious proposal out there right now for eliminating Social Security. Obviously, something has to change. And there are a few proposals I think could be fair. One might be an increase in the retirement age. Now, I know this is difficult, but with life expectancy and health and pharmaceuticals improving, uh, maybe we don't need the same type of retirement age as we had before. Another would be allowing the Social Security Administration to invest some of the money the total fund in the stock market while keeping a certain amount in treasuries as well. Third might be to change the system, indeed, and turn it into some kind of 401k or replace it with 401ks with a very generous tax deduction, but mandating that the employers must contribute to the matching. All right. They can't take away the matching in exchange for a reduction in the payroll tax that they're going to get from Social Security being reduced or eliminated. There's some proposals we could talk about. You could talk about the states again running old age pensions. They didn't do so well in the twenties and thirties, but you know, state governments are a little better organized now than they than they once were. And then the thing that nobody wants to hear about, the things that's never fair, higher taxes to fund the amount of people we're going to have to fund in the future, and the amount of benefits we want. You're probably going to have to look at either higher taxes or lower benefits down the line. Now, I know the idea of higher taxes is is bad for some, but if you're going to keep the Social Security system, I think you have to consider this. You're likely to get more of a benefit than those people in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. I know we talked about Ida May Fuller, who lived to 100. But you're more likely to do it now than those people were. Some of them did. You're more likely. Therefore, you're likely to get a larger benefit. Shouldn't you pay a little more tax than people did in the past? Aren't these increasing payroll taxes fair since you're going to receive some benefit down the line? Oh, nobody thinks taxes is fair, but it's something to think about. That's what I do on this program. Hope you enjoy the history of Social Security with a little bit of some of the severe problems we're really facing today financially and with our healthcare system. Websites, myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Encourage you to come on the Facebook site and post something of interest to me or to the listeners. And I thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, US vs. China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous US-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.